Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there should be some teachers in the back. And for the rest of us, we are two weeks in to a long-ish sermon series in the Gospel of John. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. As we live our lives, and we make claims in this world, I think one question for us is simply this. How do we know that what we know is in fact in correlation to reality? How do we know what we know is right? I mean, I, I get this question all the time as a pastor. It's most awkward when you're on an airplane. And they basically, when they find out you're a pastor, they say, so how do you know that you're right? How do I know that your claim about who Jesus is, about Christianity, is credible? I mean, when you think about it, our entire judicial system is predicated on the idea of credibility. People take the witness stand, they testify, and it's the jury it's, it's, it's their job to deliberate and to decide if that witness, if the case is credible or not. It's really easy to make a claim. Isn't it much harder to back up that claim? Well, last week, if you were here last week, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, the writer of our book, he testified to some outrageous things about Jesus Christ. He proclaimed a truth, but it's really easy to proclaim a truth. It's a lot harder to back up a truth. I remember I was playing basketball with a bunch of people and this guy walked in and someone told me that guy played college basketball. And I remember looking at him, he was smaller than me. He was like half my size. He looked like he was stuck in a cubicle for like two years. He, he was looked unathletic and I was like, there's no way this guy played college basketball. And then we started playing. And to my shame, and to the other team's victory, he testified publicly that he played college basketball. <laughs> it's one thing to say and make a claim. Oh, it's another thing to back it up with evidence. And so John has just made these amazing claims about Jesus. But to sort of quote the African-American church in America, can I get a witness? Right? That's what this section is all about. It's sort of what the title of this sermon should be, though I don't often give titles. Can I get a witness? John makes this claim, and then he turns to sort of the congregation and says, can I get a witness? And a witness steps forward to give evidence, to give first-hand eyewitness testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to do today. Today, we've got a witness, a witness who's going to testify on Jesus's behalf about who he is. And so it's our job. In one sense, we are the, the mock jury. And so it's our job corporately and individually to deliberate and to, to come to one of two conclusions. 
Is this witness credible or is he not credible? As the testimony is rolled out, the question for us is, what say ye? So the big idea behind me is simply this, that we have a credible witness, and he's going to testify that Jesus is the Christ. So turn with me to verse 19. We're going to go verse 19 all the way to verse 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming down toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Do you notice the word witness come up multiple times? It sort of frames this entire section, verse 19, then verse 34, and then right in the middle, this whole idea of testimony, witness, or another sort of word that gets at the same idea, John is going to confess. He's going to make a confession as it relates to who Jesus is. And if you dip down back into last week's sermon, verse 15, John once again is said that he is he who is going to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And indeed, that is our witness. It's John the Baptist, which I don't want us to get confused. That is not the author of this book. That's John the Apostle. So it's going to be a little confusing. But John, who's giving testimony here, is John the Baptist. Now, who is John? He's an interesting guy, all right? He had an interesting ministry, to say the least. I mean, uh, we don't get a, a detailed account of who he is, but the other Gospels explain who he is, and he is to say the least, odd. He had a huge following. He had quite the ministry, quite the following. And yet the question really is, why is John the Baptist set forth as the witness in order to uh, display and uh, make a true statement about who Jesus is that would help us all believe that Jesus really is who the writer of John says he is. Why is he a credible witness? 
Why put forward John the Baptist? I mean, my guess is that you've seen enough courtroom dramas to know that, that when you put a witness on the stand, one of the jobs of the cross-examiner is to, to discredit the witness. That's one of the jobs. So that the jury kind of throws out that witness. So what makes John the Baptist an ideal witness for us? Well, I have like a handful, but I'm just going to give you a few reasons why John the Baptist is the credible witness for us today. For one, John was legendary in his ministry, right? He he was famous and people just flocked to his ministry because he was so influential in the first century. Uh, Josephus, who was a historian right around the time of John the Baptist, he gives three more time in his kind of uh, biography in, in this time. He spends three more times describing the ministry of John the Baptist than he does to Jesus. John was really well known. He was trusted in society. But, but, but also, John had firsthand testimony of who Jesus is. He, he, he was with Jesus. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. He had experience with Jesus. And so he was a firsthand eyewitness testimony to Jesus. And that's the most credible testimony, isn't it? Firsthand testimony. Uh, last week I was in Seattle. Um, I went into Seattle to um, help put on a uh, uh, semi-trust in Seattle, and I was driving into downtown Seattle, like five blocks from Pike Street Market, and I, I saw some people walking across the street. And I, it's funny because I was just marveling at how gorgeous Seattle is and how great it is, and I love the city, and it's so dynamic and exciting, and I'm slowing down as these people are walking across the street and got rear-ended. And it was a minor one, but I, I put it in park, you know, the adrenaline's kind of flowing, and I got out of the car, and I looked, and this woman was walking her car, and she looked me straight in the face, and she goes, do you need a witness? And I was like, I need a witness. Amen. And she stay, stayed there, right? Because it was his word versus my word. Who, who are you going to trust? Well, I had a witness, and she saw everything. Th- thankfully, she was walking her dog. John was a witness, a first-hand, uh, he, he, could, he could provide first-hand testimony of who Jesus was. And that's the most credible, isn't it? So, so those are two, but, but I think the most credible, what makes John the most credible is actually his integrity. I mean, just think about John's ministry. John, in his ministry, attacked the religious elites. He went after the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites. He went after the sort of religious uh, elites, the church, and he fought for religious orthodoxy. But not only that, he went after the political elites, didn't he? He, he went after Herod, and he attacked him for his sexual impurity, and it's the very thing that's going to get him killed in the end when he goes after the political establishment. So so what makes John, I think, such a credible witness for us today is that John can't be bought. It didn't matter if you were the political elite, the religious elite. He stood for something. He was a man of courage. And if you looked in his closet, you wouldn't find any skeletons. You couldn't buy him. And not only that, but when you think about it, what does John have to gain by this testimony that he's about to give? 
I mean, he's got a large crowd. Jesus has a tiny crowd. And he's about to say, oh, Jesus is way greater than I am. He's about to, to, to say that I must decrease. He must increase, speaking about Jesus. So he's going to lose followers. I mean, he gains nothing from telling the truth. I, I think if you put all these sorts of things, his integrity, that he actually saw this and, and was there in the first century, and you'd say that he was a trusted voice. I mean, this is the credible witness that can testify to who Jesus is. No wonder a bunch of people go up to him and they ask, who are you, John? Right? Go, go, go there to verse 19. Right? Some, some, some Jews sent up some priests and Levites. And then if you go down to verse 24, we realize that, that the, the, the Jews that sent them up were the Pharisees. And they basically asked John the Baptist one question, three words. Who are you? And here's John's confession. But, but before he sort of confesses who he is, he, he says who he's not, right? There's three negative confessions. First, he says, I'm not the Christ. So in the first century, we have this sort of messianic fever and it's boiling and it's, you know, it's, it's just kind of ravaging the culture. And so the Pharisees are like, well, maybe he's the Christ because of his notoriety, his fame. But John is emphatic. He is not the Christ. Then they ask him, okay, so you're not the Christ. They like check that off. Well, what about Elijah? Are you Elijah? Either sort of the incarnation of Elijah or the incarnation of Elijah's ministry. There was this kind of belief that, that, that before that, that Elijah would come again. And they're like, well, maybe you're Elijah. And he says, no, he's not Elijah. Which is funny because in one sense he is Elijah. But, but John doesn't have even the self-awareness at this moment to even think in those terms. And so he says, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not Elijah. And they say, well, what about, are you the prophet? Which I think is a reference to Deuteronomy 18. A reference to the coming prophet, one greater than Moses, that would come and speak prophetic word of God and the people would listen. Is John that prophet? And John says, nope, not that either. So all of those kind of negative answers just lead them to be quite confused. And so they said, well, well then who are you? And at this point, you'd think John the Baptist would be like, well, I'm John the Baptist, son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't talk about his pedigree, his name. And at this point, maybe you're thinking, okay, these, these Levites are going to treat the, the witness hostile. Quit skirting it, John. Get to the point. Who, who are you? But it's really not these Levites who are in control. It's really John who's in control in this whole courtroom scene. And so he says, basically... Who I am is wrapped up in what I'm about to do. It's less important who I am and more important what my purpose is. And then we read verse 23. He quotes Isaiah 40, which Jonathan read earlier. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So, so, so in Isaiah's day, when that prophecy was, was, was spoken by Isaiah, people God's people are in exile, aren't they? They're away from God's presence. They're, they're sort of foster kids in Babylon. But then Isaiah's prophecy comes and it says, one day, one day, your estrangement from God will be over. One day, one day, 
the, the crooked road from Babylon to God is going to be made straight. That's sort of how the metaphor works. One day, the, the mountains that are keeping you away from God are going to be flattened. One day, the road back to God, the highway to heaven, is going to be made straight and you're going to have access to the glory of God. That's the prophecy in Isaiah. And John comes and says, Isaiah 40 is fulfilled in me. A day would come when God himself would arrive and the highway to God would be open once again. I have family in Montana and there's a saying in Montana that there's actually not four seasons in Montana, there's only two, winter and road construction. Well, what John is basically saying is that all the highways are fixed. All the highways. The highway to God is open. Exile is over. Now, this confuses the priests, the Levites, as you can imagine. Verse 25. They then ask the inevitable question. If you're not Jesus, or if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then why are you baptizing people? And here in verse 26, John sort of skirts the question. And instead of answering that question, he does something. He, 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 verse 26 says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He basically talks about the, the glory, the preeminence, the, the majesty of this coming one. It's an amazing testimony. John the Baptist, who is the great celebrity preacher of his day, this could have been a moment where he could have exalted himself, but he bows down in humility at that moment and says, I just want to give testimony to Jesus. I mean, he's basically saying, enough about me. I told you who I am and what I'm about. I am that Isaiah-like prophet. I'm here to give testimony to who Jesus is. Enough about me. I want to talk about the Christ. That's what I'm here for. He wants to get his testimony in the record book. Jesus must increase. John must decrease. I mean, it's quite the confession, but it's just the beginning. So in verse 29 and then in verse 34, we have two more confessions. Two great confessions that John gives. In verse 29, he says that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And then in verse 34, he says that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, why does John connect the identity of Jesus with this whole Lamb imagery? And we got to kind of do some Old Testament work on the... Uh, at this point, right? I mean, we got some clues, but, but, but is John thinking of the lamb that Abraham tells Isaac that God will provide for him as a sort of substitute? Or is this whole uh, lamb imagery, is, is John connecting it to the Passover lamb where God's people would take a, a Passover lamb and sacrifice it and put the blood over the entrance of the doors and so that the the, 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 the grim reaper, the, you know, the angel of death, when it came to Egypt, would pass over God's people in order to rescue God's people from Egypt? Is, is that the lamb that John's connecting Jesus with? 
Or what about all of the lambs that would be sacrificed year after year after year after year in the temple? Is, is this sort of a sacrificial? Or maybe it's Isaiah 53, that coming suffering servant, that it's that lamb. Or maybe one more. In John's day, there was this sort of belief, this sort of apocalyptic lamb warrior would come to rescue God's people. So maybe John is thinking of sort of an apocalyptic lamb that's coming. So which is it? Which lamb is John kind of thinking of when he connects Jesus with the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? I think all of them. I think that the reason why there's some ambiguity is for that very purpose is that, that this Jesus who's coming is all of them. They are all types or pictures of the ultimate lamb that would come. John's connecting the lamb with atonement, isn't he? That's like a $10 word. It's a fancy theological word, but you can just break it down and it means at one mint. It is the process by sacrifice taken in order to bring peace from God and man to bringing harmony, to to, to bring defiled humanity because of sin and a holy God together. That process is atonement done through sacrifice. And John says that this lamb is going to make atonement for sin. He is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so John connects this, all this imagery, and says that this lamb that who's now coming, he is that same lamb who was a substitute in Abraham's time. That this lamb who has now come, he is that great uh, sacrifice in whose blood God's people find refuge. He, he is that suffering servant who was slaughtered. A sheep before its shears is silent as he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. John connects all this sort of Old Testament theology of the lamb and bears it firmly on Jesus. And I think John at this point, I don't think he's fully connecting all the dots. Right? I don't think there's any way. I mean, he, he was a great Old Testament scholar, assuredly. But I don't think he knows all of how this is going to play itself out. But he does know enough to know that Jesus in his identity is a sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb in his identity who will take away the sins of the world. In Jesus, the exile is over and God and man will find rest. So, so, so by way of John, John's testimony first is that Jesus is the climactic lamb who is going to bring peace between God and man by erasing humanity's great foe, sin itself. But that's not the only confession, is it? Right? Go, go down to verse 34. So his first confession that he testifies on the witness stand when he raises up his right hand to say, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. He says, yep, my testimony is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then verse 34, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, our Muslim friends have a really hard time with this. Because in their estimation, when they read this, they go, blasphemy. This sounds like God and Mary conceived Jesus. 
And that is blasphemous. That's, that, that, that's, that's not the picture going on here. This picture and this title is not talking about biology. It's more theological. This is a title talking about not just Jesus' closeness as a son. This is talking about his identity as God. He is, in one sense, God. That's the second confession. And we, we saw that confession back in verse 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so John is basically attesting to and confessing and testifying that John, the writer of this gospel, is right. Jesus is God. And ironically, when you think about it, what, what is the very thing that's going to get Jesus killed in the end? You see, Jesus' death is not some accident of history. He dies because of the title that John the Baptist gives here. He dies because he is the Son of God. It's the very thing that's going to get him killed. And so after this kind of confession, which is amazing, John basically says, I rest. Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Son of God. But right before he sort of exit the witness stand, he gives one more piece of evidence, and it's amazing. Look at it, verse 31. John basically says that, verse 31, that that under most circumstances, actually under every circumstance, if God came down, you would not recognize him. If God came down to Puyallup right now, you would not recognize him. Unless you had a sign. Unless you had a sign, and John says, I had a sign. And so what we learn is that John the Baptist, he had an informant. He was tipped off to the identity of Jesus. God told him. You see, he wasn't, he wouldn't in his, in his humanity, he, he wouldn't recognize when God came in the flesh. And so God would give him a sign, a heavenly sign, so that John would recognize Jesus. Uh, a little bit ago, like a month ago, I, was, I emailed this pastor who I'd never met before, didn't even know what he looked like, and we tried to get coffee. We had like a mutual connection. And so we grabbed coffee and he emailed me and said, uh, when you come to the coffee shop, I'll be wearing a mariner's hat. Right? So, so I walked in and I looked around for the sign of a mariner's hat. And when I saw it, I walked up assuming he was the pastor, which he was. That sign, that hat, identified the man as the person I was going to see. Well, that, that's the whole point here, isn't it, right? The sign is that there would be a dove that would come from heaven and hover over Jesus. And that dove was the Holy Spirit. So, so just as in Genesis 1, the Spirit is hovering over the waters, so the Spirit would descend and hover over Jesus. And so when John sees this, when he sees the dove descending on Jesus, he knew that was the sign. It was the mariner's hat. It was the sign that this is the Christ. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Son of God. And so John waited, didn't he? Right? He waited, he waited, he waited. He put himself even in a position in order to testify to this reality. Right? That's what verse 31 says. For this very purpose, I came baptizing with water. Why did John come baptizing with water? Well, there's a few reasons. But here, the most pressing for us is he he came baptizing with water so that he, that is the Lamb of God, might be revealed to Israel. 
So, so, so John's baptism ministry is predicated on, he was baptizing all these people, the baptism of, of repentance to get Israel ready, but, but more than that, he's baptizing all these people as waiting, lurking, keeping his eyes open, just waiting for the sign that God gave him, that when the dove would descend, when the Holy Spirit would come down from heaven on a man he knew. That was Jesus. And then at that moment, sort of the, the chain reaction of his ministry would go forth. And then he was called, like Isaiah, to give testimony publicly that that is the Christ. And so here, when Jesus shows up on the scene, when he shows up on the scene to get baptized, the wait was over. And he testifies. Once he saw the sign, then he began to give testimony to who Jesus was and what Jesus was about to do. Now, in some sense, that might sound unfair, right? Like, God gives John the Baptist a personal message that when he sees something peculiar, he will know something about Jesus and then declare and be a witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens to John the Baptist is unique. It is unique in redemptive history. There is only one John the Baptist, but in a general sense, isn't that our story? Isn't that our story at all? That the Spirit's ministry today is to confirm that Jesus is who he says he is so that we can be witness to the world of who Jesus is? So the, so the Spirit descends upon us as we read God's word. It hovers over God's word. It then illuminates to us who Jesus really is so that we then, like John the Baptist, can give testimony, be a witness. And that's why the early church had to wait, isn't it? They had to wait for the Spirit to descend so that they could be a sign and a witness of who Jesus is, that he is the risen Lord. This is why we read God's word. Because if we read God's word, God's spirit descends on it. Not mystically, but truly. The, the spirit's biggest ministry, his most joyful ministry, the third person of the Trinity, he delights in illuminating the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is his fundamental Ministry in this world. That as we read God's word, as we preach God's word, as we teach God's word, as we listen to God's word, the spirit comes and testifies publicly, descending and says, that's Jesus, that he really is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He really is the son of God. Whatever your story is, whatever your personal experience and testimony is, that happened for you at some point, if you're a Christian. That at some point you realize, oh, Jesus really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that didn't happen because you, all of a sudden your intellect was such that or, or you just finally connected all the dots or you finally went to college and then, oh, yeah, or you took that course. No, it is the same power that manifested in our text today. It's the Holy Spirit and his power to illuminate darkened eyes to the reality of who Jesus is. So 2,000 years ago, John bore witness. He bore witness to who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is God incarnate, the very Son of God. And he gives that credible testimony, not just because of himself, his, his, his own eyes, his own experience, his own credibility as a man and his integrity, 
but he bore witness. He's standing on the witness stand and that testimony ripples out today. And so for us, well, we've got a, we've got a question before all of us. We, we, we are sort of jurors in, in this world and we have to do something with Jesus. We, we either take John the Baptist and we take his witness, his testimony, and we say, yeah, it's credible and I believe it. And I'm going to live my life as if it's true. Or we reject it and say, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't say, but it seems as though these Levites, these priests go away unconvinced. So, is John the Baptist a credible witness? Is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Is Jesus the Son of God? What say you? The Pharisees might not have been convinced. Some priests might not have been convinced. But soon, as we'll see, many will be convinced. The question, I think, for us this morning that I would just want to leave us with is, are you convinced? Do you believe? Has John the Baptist convinced you? And if so, it changes everything. Let's pray. God, we, um, we come to you now and we ask, we ask that you would help us to understand in a deeper way who your son is and what your son has done for us. That we might forsake all other paths in order to understand in a deeper way how we can follow you and enjoy you and experience you and worship you and be in harmony with you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the, the testimony of John the Baptist, and we pray, Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that, that, that whether Christian or not, whether seeking or resolve in our belief of Jesus, I, 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 we just pray, Lord, that, that we would go deeper in our belief that this really did happen. Jesus really did die and raise from the grave in order to take away the sins of the world. So, so may that not only be our confession, but may that be an extension of our very lives. And so we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.